All right, it's good to be here again this evening to share with you from God's Word. And if the ushers want to come back up here, I've got some handouts for you again. Last night, um, handed out pages 1 to 5, so if you weren't here... I'm not sure that we'll get to page six tonight, but that way you have it for the sessions tomorrow as well. Tonight it'll be mostly pages, page two, finish up page two, and then also page four and page five will be the main topic for this evening. number of years back, one question that I learned that you can ask people, actually maybe a series of two questions that you can ask people to find out really what their spiritual state is, well, that's, a, it's a diff, that's a difficult assignment, but maybe the, one of the quickest ways to find out where a person stands with the Lord or if they don't have any standing with the Lord is to ask them these two questions. The first one is, if you died right now, where would you go? And then if they say that I'll go to heaven, then you ask them, why do you think that God will let you in? So first of all, you're finding out where, whether they, and I've asked some people that question, and they'll just come right out and say, oh, I'm going to hell. It's surprising in today's world how many people will just say that, and they don't really care. They're living their lives in the world today just the way they want to. But that second question will help you understand, are they basing it just upon, well, I'm a good moral person, or will they base it on their faith in Jesus Christ? Now, I've since changed that question a little bit. I decided it's not a good policy to knock on someone's door and say, if you died right now, where would you go? That's probably not the best thing to ask them right away. Instead, it might be better to ask them something like this. You know, if someone was driving by and started shooting and killed both of us, uh, where do you think you would go? That might be a little better beginning to the conversation. So I really want to ask you that question tonight. Think about it. If you died right now, where would you go? And then maybe I'd ask you a little different question. Are you sure? How sure are you? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, or do you just kind of hope that you're good enough? The goal of the book of 1 John is that we might have a deep assurance and know that we are saved and be confident in our eternal destiny. That, and that's really the, 
it's a, the goal of the writing of First John and the, really the goal of these weekend meetings is to move us to that place in our Christian experience. So if you go with me to page two of the notes, if you want to take notes, we talked about the purpose of the book yesterday, last night. The purpose of the book is that, as I already mentioned, that we might know that we are saved, that we might have a full assurance of salvation, have a solid foundation in our lives, be joyful Christians, joyfully serving the Lord. So the book was written to Christians with the purpose that we might know that we are saved. I want to... Maybe I'll begin by just reading a little bit of chapter 1 of 1 John. Last night we were skipping around a little bit to a couple different parts of 1 John, and we spent quite a bit of time in the Gospel of John. This evening we're basically looking at verses 5 to 10, actually more specifically verses 5 and 7 and 9 is particularly what we're going to be looking at tonight. Tomorrow morning we'll pick up a little bit on verses 6 and 8 and 10. But I'm going to read the section from verse 5 down to verse 10. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us." So we go back to verse 5. And John begins by saying this, This then is the message which we have heard of him. Now just think about that phrase a little bit and think about what John is saying. Here's a man who in the first couple verses said that I was with Jesus. He was with him for those three years. He heard him speak, he probably slept beside him, he touched him, he heard him, he heard the Son of God give his heart to people and cry out to God. He of of any earthly human person probably understood Jesus as a human person better than anyone else. And now what he's saying is, I'm going to tell you what I heard from Jesus. And he puts it in one sentence. He gives us a one-sentence statement and says, this is what I heard from Jesus. When I was with him for those three years, this is the message. This is, it's a summary of what Jesus' teaching was. And when, when I read this, at first, I was, it it wasn't really what I expected. I was, expected something like, like, um, you know, that God is loving and kind or that God, you know, or maybe that Jesus is the good shepherd. I expected something like that. Maybe that's often more what we think, but this is what he said. This is the message that we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light 
and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So what does that mean? Well, I think we know the difference between light and darkness. But light, obviously there's different intensities of light, but if you have pure, brilliant light, you can't really look at it. You can't behold it. In, in pure light, there is no darkness at all. And darkness is really the absence of light. If there's no light at all, then there's darkness. When I was in high school taking uh, physics class and we were talking about light, I had a, a teacher who you know, loved to, to uh, use illustrations. And anyway, I, I remember we, we started talking about darkness and he started kind of pacing around the room and we didn't know what was going on. He said, you know, that he, he had a, a closet where his chemicals were in that was completely dark. He said, uh, be careful, I'm going to open that door and let the dark out. He said, get ready. And of course, we smiled and laughed. You open the door and the light goes in. The darkness can't get out. Um, another illustration might be this. Suppose we're ready to go home tonight and you flick the light switch and the light doesn't go off. What do you do? You need to get rid of the light because you don't want to have lights on in the church house. So, well, we'll call the local darkness company and order about... 10 semi-loads of darkness, back them up to the door and unload them. Doesn't work. Light and darkness are very, very different. So what does he mean by light? Um, one writer says this, and this isn't really adequate, but maybe gives a little idea. Light implies every essential excellence especially wisdom, holiness, happiness. And he's complete light. He's completely 100% all of those. What is darkness? Darkness is the opposite of that. It's all imperfection, all ignorance, all sinfulness, all misery. Light is the purest, most useful, and uh, yeah, it, it, it describes God perfectly. Now, by what John says, I understand him to say that God is completely 100% light and no darkness at all. Now, um, you may know some people who are really godly, and I, I obviously hope you know some people that are very godly and kind, but if you set out to get that person that you're thinking of angry and you pester them and yell at them and scream at them and steal from them and lie to them and you keep on doing that and keep on doing it and keep on doing it, uh, sometime they're probably going to get at least just a little bit angry at you. And for most of us, it doesn't take that long until we blow our fuse or we get angry. At least, if not externally, internally. Or we avoid the person. Uh, and, you know, we just say, well, that's kind of human. And, yeah, it is to a certain extent, but it's definitely not godly. Now, so how long does it take 
If you yell and scream at God and go out and sin and live the way you want to and throw things in his face, how long does it take till he gets angry at you? Now, I'm talking about something different. I know scripture talks about the wrath of God against sin, but I'm talking about God getting angry and upset at a person. How long does it take? You can try it all your lifetime, do anything you want, and you're not going to get God even a little bit angry. It's not in him. And I don't, I don't think we can understand that because we, we look at humans and the way they respond. God doesn't have any of that. God has no revenge, no bitterness, no score to settle. He is always good. As, as I was growing up, one of, and I, I actually kind of discovered this concept after I'd been teaching at SMBI for a while, and I, my, I remember my wife and I were in discussion over something, and I discovered one of the concepts of God that I had, and I probably got this from my family and my brothers, and I'm not sure where I picked this up, but I, I, this is kind of how I pictured God, uh, that when I would sin... I would come to him and say, God, I'm sorry for sinning. Will you please forgive me? And God would, this is kind of how I pictured it. God would come, put his arm around me and say, yes, Elijah, I forgive you. With his one arm and the other arm, he had a barrel of gunpowder, reached into the barrel of gunpowder, grabbed a fistful and he had a cannon behind him. And he stuffed a little bit of gunpowder into the cannon. And then the next day I would sin again and, and I would come, God, please forgive me. And, you know, well, yeah, I, I have to forgive you. Now, obviously, this is not the way God does. And he put his arm around me and said, yes, I forgive you. And again, a little more gunpowder in the cannon. Uh, do you think that gave me a close personal relationship with God? we were talking about this, my wife suddenly made a conclusion. She said, hmm, this makes some sense. Uh, how is it to try to love a man who has that kind of a concept of love? So my wife would write me cards, and you know, I was thinking she's putting her arm around me and the other hand stuffing gunpowder in a can. She wondered why I didn't respond. Now, I, you know, I'd like to say that I've gotten rid of that concept of God. I've, I understand that intellectually, but I, don't think, I think there's still a part of me that actually thinks God operates that way, though I know it's not true. I'm just, I just share that with you because I think we probably all have some wrong concepts of how God works. So what I thought was going to happen is that if I kept on in my sin, if I didn't get over my sin problems, there was going to come a time when God was going to explode that cannon and I was done for. And so my prayers would change to things like, okay, God, please forgive me and I'll try harder. And I made promises to him that I would, you know, to, to try to keep his anger from getting me. And didn't create a very close relationship with God. So what I want to say, what, uh, however you want to summarize the message from Christ there, the, the key is that he is completely light, he is completely good, there is no darkness in him at all, there is no revenge, there is no evil, 
You cannot make him lose his temper. We, we looked yesterday in chapter 2 at um, the two things that John wrote to little children. Those two things were that you might know that you have forgiveness and also that you might know uh, something about the Father. I don't have the exact words here. But really, in this, in this verse, he's already talking about our concept of the Father and who he is. It's something that is, there's not so much just a, uh, a set of verses on that, but it's kind of scattered throughout the book. He challenges and tries our concept of God and tries to, to uh, correct it. Okay, we, we're, we're kind of picking up here at the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. Beginning of verse 6 says this, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light. Those two verses introduce two groups of people. The one group is those who walk in darkness. You see that in verse 6, and the other is those who walk in in the light. So now we're in the bottom there of, of page two. Now, th- this, this isn't anything new. I know you, you know very well that there are only two groups of people in the world, those that believe in Christ and are Christians, and those that don't believe in Christ and are not Christians. I think we're very well aware of that, but I just want to explore this a little bit different, uh, a little bit deeper, maybe, and look at the difference between the two. Those that are walking in the light, the maybe I may as well do this now. You, you will uh, throughout the book. It's going to be helpful if you're aware of of a couple of the basic Greek tenses here. In fact, what I'm giving you here is a very quick two-minute Greek lesson. It's probably, but it's probably the most important thing that I teach my Greek students in two terms. The present tense in Greek is... I can just draw it with a line. It means ongoing or continued action. It's something, it's, it's sort of a, uh, something we don't really get with the English verbs, but the primary thing in Greek verbs is the kind of action that's going on. So when you translate it into English, you don't really get that unless you, uh, unless you add a bunch of words to it, which the King James doesn't. But present... Present tense means ongoing or continued action, so I just use a line. The aorist tense, I just use a point, means point in time action, just action done, completed action, without any reference to it being over a period of time. And then the perfect tense is completed action with ongoing results, kind of a combination of the two. Um, Let me, the perfect tense, we're not going to run into as much in John. We are going to run into the present tense a lot and the aorist tense some as well. Uh, Just give you an illustration here of the, the perfect tense. I think it's in Revelation where it says there was a door standing open in heaven. The word standing there is in the perfect tense. 
What that means is the door was opened in the past, but it's still open today. The results of it being open are still there. So because it's in the perfect tense, you know that it was open in the past and is still open. If he had used the aorist tense, you'd just know that sometime a door was open, but it wouldn't say anything about if it's still open or not. If you use the present tense, it would mean you're constantly opening the door. Uh, so that's, that's a quick point of the differences here. Now, the, the verb in those walking in the light is in the present tense, which is important to understand what's going on here. So it's the, the mode of action, what you continue to do, how you continue to live. We're not talking about a point in time when someone becomes a Christian, but we're talking about their mode of life. Those who are walking in the light, and I know you've got some room there on your paper. I'm just going to give you some different descriptions of this, try to describe what it means. It, it, uh, so walking denotes movement. It's an in, the, uh, well, and even if you use the illustration of earthly light, it, it may help us to understand it. If, if you want to stay 24-7 in the light of the sun, if I just stay right, if I, if I go outside the building tomorrow morning and say, huh, I'm in the light, and I just stay planted right there, how long will I stay in the light? About 12 hours. If I want to stay in the light, I've got to move, and I won't be able to run fast enough to do it. But if I can move around the earth and keep moving around the earth, then I can stay in the light. That's a little bit of a picture of what this is talking about. It's talking about movement. It's not talking about just a point in time. We could say, another thing I think he's saying here is that walking in the light is the goal or purpose or desire of your life. It's more than just surface deeds. It's talking about the deep desires and goals of your heart. We could say this is a person's heart is really the issue here. Now, let's talk a little bit about walking in darkness, and then I'm going to come back and do some some more illustrations of the two and the difference. So walking in darkness, again, the walking in darkness is in the present tense. So again, the idea of walking in darkness, the person has the intention to stay. They like it there, and that's where they really feel at home on a deep level. They... Uh, darkness reminds me of blindness. Blindness would be another word here. They can't, they're in the darkness, so they can't really see. They don't perceive truth. They can't see where they are going. And again, since they're walking, it seems like there's an intention to stay there. It's a plan on sinning. It's not just occasionally falling into sin, but it's actively planning and keeping on sinning. Walking in darkness is a life apart from God, is what it is. So we're still on the bottom there at page two. I just want to do a few more things to get us thinking about the difference between the two. Uh,
This is what I call the stair-step approach to Christian maturity. Um, I don't know who you put up at the top here, you know, maybe the missionary, uh, maybe next the minister, uh, and then maybe the uh, Sunday school teacher, uh, uh, maybe here's just, uh, maybe here, you know, I am. Down here is maybe someone who's not really a member of the church, but is a seeker. Down here is, uh, uh, you know, until you get way down here, you get the drunkard. And you kind of have a progression there like that. Now, uh, if you, and you can make a lot more steps and, you know, you start down here and work your way up, and the further up you get, the more mature and the better off you are. Now, the question with that is, so where do I draw the line as to who's a Christian and who isn't a Christian? Uh, you know, is this guy who's kind of seeking but hasn't really joined the church and not quite sure if me, you know, but you know, what about myself? Am I really in or out? Well, surely the Sunday school teacher's in. But, you know, where do I draw the line? And I don't really know. Uh, so what you get in here is, is a gray area. Where we're not quite sure if we're in or out. And I think a lot, uh, a lot of people kind of approach Christianity that way. I would suggest maybe a better way is something like this. Uh, this is the world. These are those that are out. Within that group of people in the world, there are those that are in. With this, this is a door that swings in or out. Uh, and there is no gray area, no fence. Um, I, I remember my, one of my teachers in school, this wasn't really in relation to Christianity, but he said, he said some people have one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. Uh, not a good situation. Sometimes we use that sort of illustration with, with Christianity. We say they have one foot on the other side and the other foot on the fence and they're about slipping off. Well, it, it's not really that way. There is, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area. Not in God's eyes. We're either though of those walking in the light or of those walking in darkness. You're either in or you're out, not somewhere in between. I was meditating on that phrase. I, I, I think the first couple times I taught First John, I used that quote that I just gave you, that you're either in or you're out. But as I've been studying the book of First John, I've concluded that's not I don't think John, in writing this book, would say it that way. That's not the point of what he is trying to do here. The point of what John is trying to say, I think he would say it more like this. He would say, if you're not out, then you're in. And when I grasp the truth of that, it really helped settle, settle myself as far as even my assurance of salvation. What John is saying in this book is there is no gray area. So ask yourself the question, if you're wrestling with where you are in your Christian life, the description of walking in darkness, does that match where you are? Are you content to stay away from God? Is that really, is that really the deep heart? Is that really where you are? Is that, are, are you just putting on a front of Christianity, but at a deep level you don't really care? 
and you you just prefer to be out there and maybe be a hypocrite. Is that really what you want at a deep level? Is that what you're continually living? And if it is, you need to repent. You need to come to Christ. On the other hand, if you're struggling sometimes, just because you sin and are struggle, but if at a deep level your heart desires God and that's the ongoing underlying theme of your life, then I say you're in. Obviously, I can't tell by looking at someone. Only God can do that. But what John is trying to do here right at the beginning of the book, now he, you, you have to understand he is writing to believers. And we talked about that last night. He is, not, he is writing to those who have already repented and believed, as we said last night. Those who have come to Christ in desperation have grabbed a hold of him and have a need for salvation. That's who he's writing to. And yet, obviously, the group that he's writing to as little children, are struggling. They're not sure if they're saved. They're having problems with fear and doubt, and they're not sure if their sins are forgiven. And so if you find yourself in that kind of a situation, one of the first things John says is, I'm classing you with those that are walking in the light. Here's a a question that I give my students, and I'm going to give it to you as well, only I guess I won't require you to write out a... They have to write a response to this. But I'm just going to give it to you. You can think about it a little bit here, and we'll talk a little bit about it. We've, so we've got the phrase, if we walk in the light. We've described a little bit what that means. Now, I'm going to give you three more phrases, if phrases, and I want you to identify, are they equivalent? Uh, This is kind of a true or false question. Are they equivalent to that phrase, or are they something different? Um, If we never sin... This side, I can write a little neater. If we do not enjoy our sin, if we do not sin knowingly, now my question is, Could we take one of those phrases and put them in the beginning of verse 7 and have the same meaning as if he says, but if we walk in the light. If I stuck in there, if we never sin. Or if I stuck in there, if we do not enjoy our sin. Or if I put in there, if we do not sin knowingly, would I have the equivalent meaning? The first one is probably fairly obvious because we know that Christians do sin. We know that Christians do commit sin. John is not preaching in this book sinless perfection, although some people get that out of the book, but that's not what he is is preaching. So walking in the light, 
doesn't mean that we will never sin. So that one's not correct. If we do not enjoy our sin, uh, think about that. You can, you can uh, be a glutton, eat all you want, just as long as you don't enjoy it, then you're okay. That doesn't really make sense either. There is a sense of enjoyment in sin. Sin does have a certain amount of pleasure. So if you do sin, there's going to be a certain amount of pleasure in it. So I don't think that one works either. If we do not sin knowingly. Now there's a verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 10... Hebrews 10.26 that I want to read, and your mind may have gone to this verse. How much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of Man? Oh, no, that's verse... Okay, I, I, I need to go back up a couple of verses. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now, one of the keys to interpreting that verse well is that's in the present tense. The word sin there is in the present tense. What he says in that verse is that if you keep on ongoingly sinning willfully, then there is no, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. And that matches what John says later, the person who lives a life of sin cannot continue being in Christ. Now, my answer to this one is also false. I want you just to think about that a little bit. If we put true to that, what would that mean? Now, the last time you sinned, did you... Obviously, there's some unknowing sin in our lives, but have you ever sinned when you knew when you did it? You knew very well you were doing wrong, but you just kind of ignored it. Just take gluttony for example. You knew you shouldn't eat that next piece of cake. Now it's a very simple matter, but you did anyway. You knew you shouldn't, and you did anyway. You fill in the blank. Does that mean you're not a Christian right at that point in time? My answer to that is no. But if you keep on living that way, it'll lead to disastrous results. Someone has said this, and this made me stop and think a little bit first. I reacted to it at first, but the more I've thought about it, the more I realize there's there's a truth to this statement. They said it this way, and I don't know where I got this quote anymore. The more godly you become, the more knowingly you sin. At first I was like, well, what? But think about it. It's, it's the, the immature Christians who sin and don't know that they're sinning. The mature Christian knows and has knowledge and has experience and shouldn't be sinning. And when they sin, it's because they choose to sin. That's what I get out of that statement. So what, what I want you to see on page two there, the two groups of people, very clearly, you're either in one group, you're either in the out group or you're in the in group. There is no in between. 
And the thing that you have to understand is that God deals very, very differently with these two groups. I think sometimes we kind of minimize the difference, but it's a huge difference in how God deals. If, you're, if I take my left hand here to be the, the out group, those that are walking in darkness, one sin, one little sin, and you're guilty before God. God is 100% perfect, 100% light. One sin and you're condemned. You can live a godly, moral life all your life, but one time in your mind become angry at someone and you're condemned. The wages of sin is death. No hope outside of God. This group over here, who's believed in Jesus Christ, God deals with sin very, very differently than what he does for the other side. It's a huge difference. So what we want to explore more this evening is how God deals with sin for the believer. Okay, we'll go on to page 5. We covered page 3 yesterday, which was salvation. And really how to, in that opening diagram we did, that was how to get into the first box of little children. Now we're going to be really talking about how to move from the box of little children into the box of young men and how uh, getting more onto the theme of assurance of salvation, particularly that of forgiveness. I start there with, with two questions. The first one is this. Driving his car around a corner, Jake crosses the center line and suddenly finds himself directly in the path of a speeding semi-truck. Jake has only three seconds to live. In those three seconds, he lets out a string of swear words. Now, maybe the background of Jake is he's been a Christian for a couple weeks. Before that, he had a problem with swearing. He's been doing pretty well with it, but in this moment, the swear words come out. And then suddenly he's gone into eternity. Now the question is this. I say Jake claimed to be a Christian. His previous life and testimony supported this claim. Where will Jake go? Will he go to heaven or hell? And how and why? Again, that's a question I like to give my students and let them wrestle with it. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit here as we go on. The second question is a little very different scenario, but again, I want to use it later here tonight. Suppose that I come up to you and tell you something like this, or you can picture a friend of yours coming up to you and saying this, you know, I'll just call this person I'm coming up to, Tim. You know, Tim, I've had some... I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I might have done some things that hurt you, and maybe I have some bad attitudes toward you, uh, and, I, I, and I'm wondering if you could forgive me, please. And... Well, what's Tim going to do? He says, yeah, okay, Elijah, I'll forgive you. And... I turn around and, and I walk away and I'm 
got rid of all my guilt and whatever else. And what did I just do to Tim? How would you feel if you were Tim? What, what did I do that made him think this about me? What, oh, he's, he's probably, if he's like a lot of us, kind of left wondering what's going on. Now, what I think we do sometimes is that's exactly kind of what we do with God, or it's what I did with God in my teen years in relation to this whole thing of forgiveness. I really already talked about that, that review there, how God deals with the sins of the two different groups. I really, really already kind of talked about that. So uh, I'm going to go down to the personal experience there. In my teen years, especially my early teen years, this is kind of how I felt that God dealt with my sin. And I had some issues and problems I was dealing with. I had some nasty brothers and sisters who'd make me mad. And they'd try to, I had this habit of biting them, and they'd make me mad enough to try, they'd pick on me to try to get me to bite, and then they'd yell and scream, you know, and get mom and dad to come. But anyway, so I thought God was up in heaven watching me with a marker in his hand, and he would keep record. When I would get mad or I'd tell a lie, he'd put an X down in my account. And, uh, you know, sometimes by the end of the day, he had a nice string of X's. And uh, then at the end of the day, I'd come to God and say, God... I got mad at my brother, I did this, and I, would you please forgive me, I'm sorry that I didn't, and he'd go like this, you know, but there was one there I forgot. So then I learned another line to say, if there's anything else that I did, please forgive me for that too. And so God goes, okay. Oh, we kind of laugh at that, but that was really my concept of how God dealt with it. Um... Well, um, the next day, God was watching again, and this time he says, aha, I'm going to get him, and I would get mad, and God would go, aha, gotcha, I'm going to send you to hell, and by the end of the day, he really had me, so at the end of the day, I'd come back and say again, God, please forgive me for all those sins, any that I forgot, and if I commit any sins during the night, please forgive me for those too, um, now, I hope you recognize when I said that phrase, aha, I gotcha, does God deal that way with us? No, that's the devil, that's our enemy. You see, Satan had it all turned around in my mind. I was attributing to God what was actually the characteristics of Satan. I had it all turned around. And as you can imagine, I didn't have much assurance of salvation. That that sort of concept militated against it very much. So let's look at, let's go to 1 John chapter 1, 
and verse 7. That's kind of where our notes are now. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now this isn't really in your notes there, but I just want you to stop and think about that phrase a little bit. As he is in the light. God is 100% light. So if we are a Christian and walking in the light, what percent light are we? How pure and clean are we? Maybe if we're really good, we get up to 90%, or maybe the evangelist or the, the missionary gets up to 98 or 99. Maybe the best person's 99.5%. That's not what the text says. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, how are you going to get that kind of perfection? You're not going to get it by your own efforts. It only comes because of God who is the light. Uh, like we said earlier, there is no middle ground. You're not, going to get, you're not going to be able to take any sin with you into heaven. There's no sin going to be into heaven. So if, if you're going to be ready to die every moment of every day for all of your life, you've got to be free from sin every moment. If you've got one sin in your life, you're done for. You better not die during that time. You know, I, I go back to the way I was viewing God. If, if that indeed was true, that God was putting X's on my record that whole time, if I would have died, I, one sin and you're out. Uh, I don't think that's the way God operates. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, and he, there's two blessings here, of walking in the light. The first one is we have fellowship one with another. And I'm not going to talk a lot about that tonight just because of the time factor. I'm focusing more on the second one on forgiveness. But, but uh, I, I think basically what I think that's saying is that when we are a believer in Christ, there's something that connects with us at a deep level with other believers you may have had this happen if you're in the middle of a group of people who are non-believers, or even if you're out evangelizing and you run across someone else who's a believer, even if they're from a very different nationality or background or denomination, something within you connects with them at a deep level. I think that's what he's talking about. We have fellowship one with another. And the second thing that he says is that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. The word cleanseth there is in the present tense. Now we're back to your notes there on page 4. The cleanseth is in the present tense, which means ongoing, continuing action. Present, ongoing, continuous action. So the blood of Jesus Christ is ongoingly, continually cleansing us from sin. The word cleanseth means to make clean. Or to remove is what that word means. So I ask the question then, so when does God forgive us? When is it, when we sin, when is it that God forgives our sin? And I, I give a 
gives three options there, and I want to start by talking about the top one up there, when we say the right words. Now, that was kind of my concept of forgiveness in my teen years. I thought that if I sinned, and God had those X's on my record, if I could come to him and say the right words, now I might not have phrased it that way, I would have said I'm confessing my sin, which I probably was, uh, but you know, I, I thought if I said a prayer, God, please forgive me for those sins, I thought God had no option and he had to do it because I said the right words. Now, I'll give you a simple illustration to show you that doesn't really work very well. If that was the case, that if a person said the right words, I have a very good plan for evangelism here. Uh, let's find the nearest bar. And about 12, 1 or 2 in the morning when the people are coming out of the bar really drunk and don't know what they're doing, I'll have you go up to them and talk to them a little bit and get them to say some words after you. You know, maybe they have foam coming out of their mouth and they're kind of stuttering and stumbling around and you'd, say, you'd tell them, hey, say this after me. And you say, God, I'm a sinner. And they say, God, I'm a a sinner. And then please forgive me for my sin. I'm sorry. And they say the words after you. Now, are they born again? No, not at all. I I think we know, and I ask you, why not? Well, they didn't really mean it in their heart. You've got to mean it from your heart. It's got to be deeper than the words that you say. It's not the words that you say, sort of an abracadabra, that brings forgiveness of sin. That's not the case at all. The second option there is when we are born again. So when you say a prayer and come to Christ, does God forgive you of your sins then? And my answer to that is, and I think we would all agree with this, our past sins are forgiven. All of our past sins are forgiven at that moment in time. Now, an eternal securitist would say that your past sins and your future sins are forgiven at that moment. And if your past sins and your future sins are forgiven at that moment in time, then it doesn't really matter how you live the rest of your life because you have a guarantee that no matter what you do and how often you do it, you're going to be forgiven. That's basically what eternal security teaches. It teaches that at that moment in time, your past and present and future sins are all forgiven. I believe that when you're born again, your past sins are forgiven, but not your future sins. Now, so how, how, how do we handle this? Let, let, me, let me give you what I heard. Uh, I think I heard this quite a number of years later, heard a minister give this illustration. And I like this a lot better than my concept, but I think it's still a little inadequate. Uh, He said it this way, that when you sin, it's like God gets the marker in his hand and gets ready to put an X on your record. But Jesus Christ is our intercessor, and Christ intercedes for us, And the Holy Spirit is also involved. The Holy Spirit says, I know this person. I know that they don't want to do that. I know that they have something deeper in them. And I know that they will confess it. And so God doesn't mark the sin down. 
And then maybe a day or two later, or maybe an hour later, we confess the sin to God because we're convicted of it. Now, I like that scenario a whole lot better, but what I don't like about it is it's still viewing God as a God up in heaven who is watching me as a judge to write down my sin. And I, I, I don't think that's quite correct. So the third option there is when we commit the sin, and that's what I think is the correct choice. And if you read the text just simply and clearly as it's given here, it says the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, is ongoingly, continually cleansing us from, the King James says all sin, it's literally each singular sin, or each, each and every sin is practically what it's saying. It's not just lumping all the sins together, it's saying from each and every sin. The blood of Christ is ongoingly, moment by moment, cleansing us from each and every sin. Uh, I, I, had, I had someone illustrate it this way to me when this concept was just kind of first new to me. Uh, you have to have a chalkboard to do this, but it'll, I think it'll make sense to you. If I had been using a piece of chalk to mark the X on the board when I sinned, and the eraser to erase it off, what you do is you just put the piece of chalk inside the eraser, and then you just go like this. So when is it forgiven? Right when you sin. It's forgiven at that very moment in time. Now, if you haven't thought of it that way, I know that seems maybe rather radical, but I've become convinced that's the reality of our walk with Christ. When you sin, God forgives you at that very moment in time. He's not up there as a judge trying to send us to hell. Not at all. A, a, a picture down at the bottom of the page, a picture that... I, I kind of get this, I'm not sure where I got this picture at first, but it's, it's really helped me understand this concept. I, I picture a waterfall, I guess you could call it a bloodfall, it doesn't sound very nice, but picture the blood of Christ coming down over a falls, and I'm standing under that fall. The blood of Christ is ongoingly, moment by moment, washing over me and cleansing me of each and every sin. And I've, I've come to the reality that if it wasn't for that, if, if that was not true, I would not stand a chance of getting into heaven. If I step out from underneath that waterfall, I'm not going to make it on my own. There's no way that I am going to, by my own strength, be able to get into heaven. I need that ongoing cleansing flow of the blood moment by moment, every moment of every day. I need the forgiveness of God. I don't know if you ever had this happen to you. You probably have. God puts a finger on some sin in your life that you weren't aware of that you've been doing for 10 years. And he says, hey, I want that area of your life. If God had been up there marking that sin down for 10 years, what would have happened if you had died? You'd be in deep trouble. You wouldn't make it because no sin enters heaven. But he was forgiving. 
He was forgiving. And when the time came, when you were ready for it, he put his finger on that area in your life. My guess is he's still got areas in your life. He's still got areas in my life, or big areas in my life, where he's putting his finger on it and saying, Elijah, I want those too. Go on to page five. Here's just a couple other scripture verses that I think help clarify this. Let's do the one from Psalm 130 first, uh, the exact chapter that Joshua read and actually commented on these verses just a little bit. Psalm 130, verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. There it says it very clearly. David said it very clearly. If God would mark down iniquities, who would stand a chance? None of us. But there is forgiveness with thee. Isaiah chapter 55 Verses 6 through 9. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now think about verse 7 there a little bit. It says, when the unrighteous, um, when the wicked forsakes his way and the unrighteous his thoughts and returns to the Lord, the Lord will have mercy on him and he will abundantly pardon. If the wicked repents, God will forgive, he'll pardon. If he falls back into sin, if he repents again, God will pardon and have mercy. Now, verse 8 here says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Sometimes we take that verse and kind of pull it out of the context and say something like this, God's ways and thoughts are way up here and we're way down here and we can't really reach him. There is some truth to that concept, but that's not really what he's talking about here, I don't believe. What he's talking about is, I don't think about forgiveness. I don't view forgiveness the same way you do at all. Let me, let me illustrate. Suppose I come up to you and say, hey, could I borrow $20 from you? I need some money. So you give me $20. I go out and blow it. The next day I come back and say, can I borrow $20? I need $20. You know, you might do that for three or four days. You might give me $20. But after a little while, you'd say, hey, Elijah... Uh, what are you doing with that money? You need to, and you'd give me a little lecture. You might give me the money, but you'd at least give me a lecture with the money. And after a while, you'd quit giving me the money because it's not doing me any good. Uh, and I'd say, oh, please, I'm sorry. I won't. And no. Uh, and and we, we think God is the same way we're afraid, and this, this is how I was in my scenario. After, after a, a couple months and even a year or so of living the way I was, I, I kind of changed my prayers because I thought God was getting mad at me, and I started saying things like, oh, God, 
please forgive me for my sins, and I will, I'll try harder. And I, and, and I would make promises to him. Uh, this, this verse simply says that when the wicked comes to God in repentance, when you repent and are really sorry about your sin at a deep level, God will forgive you. He said, what he's saying in verse 8 is, I don't think the way man thinks. My thoughts aren't the way. In fact, verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My ways of dealing with the repentant are much, much higher and better and different than yours. I don't even think the way you think. I don't get angry or upset or whatever. Not one bit. Not at all. Simply the truth there that when the when we come to God in sincerity, he forgives and forgives. I, I think we don't understand the mercy of God. His mercy, David talked about his mercy. His mercy is everlasting, goes on forever. And as humans, we don't have that quality. None of us have an everlasting mercy. Eventually, we, even if we're very long-suffering, we can get to the end of our stick sometimes really fast. Okay, let's go on to verse 9. If we confess our sins, uh, let me make sure I read it correctly here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Greek word for confess is homologeo. Now, we've already talked about this. I, I, at least in my experience, made the word confess into saying the right words. And I think we should all realize confession is more than the words that we say. The Greek word Hamalageo is made up of two parts. The first prefix there, homo, means the same. We get our word homonym from that. And lageo is the word to say or to speak. So this word literally means to say the same thing as. Or we could say it to agree with God. So if, if someone commits a sin, and, oh no, I committed a sin, I'm going to hell, I need to... Oh, and they come to God and say, God, I'm sorry for that sin. Are they really agreeing with God that the sin is bad, is wrong? Um, I'm not sure. This confession is much, much more than the words, although I'm, 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 it does include words, definitely, but words are more the result. Confession is something deep that comes out of the heart. It's, confession is agreeing with God about our sin is the root meaning of this word. It's to agree with God that sin is wrong, is, is a simple way to think of it. I say there, if we confess, is a parallel statement to if we walk in the light. Uh, I had that series of statements up here and asked you if they're parallel, and I, none of those that I had up here were. Here, I think, is a, is a parallel statement. In fact, it's John, John says, if we walk in the light, then he says we have forgiveness, then he says if we confess our sins... And then he, he again says we have forgiveness. So I believe he's giving a parallel statement. Uh, and this is again in the present tense. So what he's saying is, 
If we ongoingly, continually, as a mode of life, agree with at a, a deep heart level that sin is wrong, then he says we have forgiveness. That's the way I, I uh, look at that. Romans 10, verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There, Paul, writing in Romans, connects those two things, confession with the mouth and believing in the heart. You cannot have true confession with the mouth unless it's coming out of the heart. Those two things have to come together. And I believe that when you get that belief in the heart, the confession of the mouth is going to come out of that and be a result of it. But you can't say the right words with the mouth without having the confession going deeper into the heart. Words, okay, I've got there in, in, in bold there. Words are the natural result of forgiveness, but are never. Let's see if I can find the right place here, what my word was there. But are never the basis for forgiveness. Words are the natural result, but are never the basis for forgiveness. The basis for forgiveness is the blood of Jesus Christ. The basis for forgiveness is not the words that come out of your mouth. You are forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ, not because of the words that come out of your mouth. The words that come out of your mouth are a result of the forgiveness that God gives. The word forgive there in verse 9, the Greek word is aphiemi, and the literal meaning of that word forgive is to send forth or to send away. Literal meaning of the word forgive is to send forth or to send away. So in Matthew 4.20, and I'm not going to read the verse there, but it says that the disciples left their nets. It reads the disciples, me their nets. So the word sometimes, me is translated literally as if you leave something. But it also means to forgive. So when your sins are forgiven, they leave. They're gone is the literal meaning of it here. Which creates some interesting situations for translators sometimes. One I remember looking at was the devil after he attempted Jesus. The text says the devil afiemi Jesus. Now, did he leave Jesus or did he forgive him? (laughs) Well, obviously he left him. And that's the way the translators translate it. But that's just illustrating that word can be taken to mean two different things. But the literal meaning is, is left. Another, in, uh, one little nugget here, and, and you know, I, I skipped over, and it, I, I learned this verse, verse 9, you probably did too, I learned it in Sunday school, repeated it many times. We confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I missed something in these verses, and I've been teaching the class for 
quite a long time till I really picked this up. And that is the word just. I was always afraid of the justice of God. I thought, when I thought of God and his justice, it made me shudder because I was afraid that I couldn't match up to it. But the way the word is used here, it says God is, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, think about this. The wages of sin is death. And so when you sin, the justice of God demands payment for that sin. And there has to be death. The wages of sin is death. There's no way around that. But Jesus Christ came and he paid the full wages. Did he do it perfectly? Yeah, he did it 100%. He gave his life as an innocent victim. And it's been paid. The justice of God for the believer has been fully completed. And so for those on this side... Does God become angry at your sin? He doesn't like the sin, but the payment is done. When you're here and believing in Jesus Christ, and the blood of Christ is flowing over you, would it be just for God to condemn you? No, because his son paid the price. His son paid the the full price with his life and with his blood. And so, the justice, this is the next line there, the justice of God is on our side. The justice of God is not against us. The justice of God is on our side for the believer. And I I say this carefully, but I say this to make a point. I, I say it this way, is that justice demands that God cleanse all those who cling to that blood payment. The justice of God demands that that God cleanse all those who cling to that blood payment. The justice of God demands death, but that has been accomplished. And so God would not be just if he condemned the believer. So uh, I think that's kind of what I had there at the end. God's justice Yeah, I guess that's finishing that line. God's justice demands that God cleanse all those who are clinging to that blood payment. Going down to the review of the opening questions. The review of the Jake question. So if Jake lets out a string of swear words, if if indeed he is a believer. Now, one thing I want to say carefully here is I might look at at Jake and say he is a believer. I can't judge that. Only God knows. But if indeed the Holy Spirit is living in him and he is a believer, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses him at the moment those swear words come out. God doesn't write them on his record. And so where is he going? He's going to heaven. How, How is he going there? Because the blood of Christ. He was believing ongoingly in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how he's getting in. Now if... If he lived, if he made it through the accident, probably the next day when he wakes up, he would realize, you know, or maybe, he, maybe he didn't even realize he said the swear words. I don't know. But if he realized, then I think he's going to come to God in confession and repentance and realize what he did. But the forgiveness is not based on his words. It's, it's based on his heart attitude. Now, let me, let me talk just a little bit about that second illustration. 
Um, remember I came up to Tim and said, Tim, I might have done something wrong to you. I might have had a bad attitude toward you. I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And, you know, Tim is a good Christian in quotes and says, yes, I forgive you. And I turn and walk away. And you know what? After that, Tim and I are just really close like this. We have a really close relationship. Uh, no, probably not. Um, so what should Tim do? Now, I'm not trying to say Tim should be harsh, but maybe what he should do is something like this. You know, Elijah, uh, you, you say you might have done something to me. So what did you do? Or you say you might have a bad attitude, so what kind of an attitude do you have toward me? Oh. <laughs> he should get me to name the sin instead of coming with this vague sort of confession. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen this happen sometimes, and in, in, in I remember one particular incident in my mind. I knew that there was some deep, long-standing issues between a couple brothers in the church. And I remember after church, I saw this happen. The one brother walked up to the other, and, you know, he said something like, there's been a lot of stuff between us, and I'm sorry for all the things that have happened. Would you please forgive me for all the stuff that has happened? And the other brother said, yeah, I will. It didn't really make any difference. It didn't heal the wounds. It didn't... It, it was still all there. What would have been the difference if that first, if that brother would have come and said, you know, I, he started naming the sins and the attitudes that he had. And in doing that, he probably started crying and weeping. What would have been the difference? Now, take that into our relationship with God. If I come to God and say, Oh God, I sinned today. I, I did this and this and this and I'm afraid I'm going to hell and uh, I, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And God forgives me and uh, uh, I, do I have a close relationship with God? Or what if I come to God and say, you know God, you know, today I got mad at my brother's I really shouldn't do that. I'm sorry. I, I, and, and, and I start crying and weeping because of my sin because I realize God's given me the provision to come over it. I name my attitudes. I name my sins. And then God puts his arm around me, forgives me, loves me. Am I going to have a close relationship with God then? Yeah, yeah. I think the way we treat our relationships with other people and how we, get, uh, how we seek forgiveness with them has a big impact on our relationship with God. That last line there is, we may be only wanting out of the consequences and not really being sorry about what we have done. Oh, no, wait. Okay, let me say something else here about number two. I, I'm skipping over here. What about praying, Lord, if I have done this or that, please forgive me. That's what those lines are. I kind of talked about that, but kind of indirectly. It, I was asking the question there, is it okay to come to God and say, Lord, I might have done something wrong, and maybe I forgot something. Would you please forgive me for anything else that I've done wrong? I'm asking, should we do that? 
And my response to that is that we may only be wanting out of the consequences and not really being sorry about what we have done. And a parallel is when we go to other people with the same approach. I think that's, that, that's why I gave you that illustration of how we go to other people, to illustrate how that is how we sometimes go to God as well. Now, what, what all this has done in my own personal journey is I started understanding the forgiveness of God, the ongoing moment-by-moment moment cleansing of the blood of Christ. When, when I sin, I, I find, you know, that it, when my younger years, my first response when I got angry or sinned, I would say, God, please forgive me for that. And God forgave me, and that was it. I'd keep going on my way. Because now I had forgiveness. Instead, now that I realize that God forgives me, moment by moment, and, and again, I say this carefully, because you can overdo this, but someone told me, Elijah, you need to sit in your sin. I was like, oh, wait, what do you mean? What, what they meant is this. Think about it a little bit. What did you just do? Why did you do it? What did it do to the heart of God? Instead of running to God really quickly, you get out of the consequences. Think and meditate upon upon what that does to the heart of God. Let it sink in. Let sorrow get deep into your heart. Sorrow and regret and remorse. Let it sink deep into your heart. Then when you come to God and you bring it to God, the repentance is going to be a whole lot deeper than if you just run to Him to get out of the consequences. Now, some of what I'm telling you, your journey may be very different on this matter. All I can tell you is my personal journey and some of the things that I've Learn. And if it can be helpful to you, I pray that it is. At, at, at the same time, when we, when we sin, that we need to come in sorrow and remorse, at the same time, what's really strange is that's mixed with an element of gratefulness. And even joy almost because of the relationship we have with God and the forgiveness of God. You have sorrow mixed with thankfulness at the same time because of, his, because of his forgiveness and his ongoing love. Tomorrow morning, we want to look at verses 6, 8, and 10 then and, and the first two verses of chapter 2. You will notice we're spending a lot of time on chapter 1 and, and uh, I mean, till till uh, the end of the message tomorrow, we'll still be at chapter 2, verse 2. We haven't gotten very far. We may get into a little bit in chapter 3. Well, actually, we will get in a little bit in chapter 3. As I said earlier, we're not going to be able to do the whole book. I'm just picking out uh, bits and pieces of the, of the book that I think apply especially to...